Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. While Congress has passed an infrastructure bill and is wrangling over additional legislation to fulfill President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, it seems the issue of voting rights has moved out of the spotlight. This is after Senate Republicans, with one exception, again blocked debate on the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that have been struck down by the Supreme Court since 2013. Vice President Harris said in a speech this week, the right to vote is the cornerstone of our democracy. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer has insisted voting legislation is a priority as states across the country have passed restrictive voting bills, even if it means eliminating the filibuster. But it's unclear that there is enough support for taking that step, even from President Biden. Now, civil rights groups have issued a scorecard rating every senator in several categories and on their voting records on that and other key pieces of legislation and on their willingness to end the filibuster. The civil rights scorecard gives senators grades A, pass, I, incomplete, or F. No surprises as to who passed and who failed. One of the organizations behind the report card was the National Urban League, we invited its CEO and president, Mark Morial, to join Equal Time to talk about what comes next. So welcome to Equal Time, Mark Morial. Great. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I was very intrigued by the scorecard, by a, a group of civil rights groups. And it was really interesting to see and to go through. And people can check their own senators. But maybe it's important to understand why the scorecard. Well, there are a few things about this that are uh, that are unique, or that are that are that are that are first time. One that the civil rights groups came together as one to do this scorecard. Others have had scorecards in the past, notably the NAACP, and we decided that we needed to put transparency and focus on voting rights and democracy. Uh, the second. Part of this, which I think is important, is that we have focused for this scorecard at this time on a single issue. And that issue is the issue that undergirds everything in this nation. That is democracy and the right to vote. Without the right to vote, we have no seat at the table. With no seat at the table, we can't impact education, economic, foreign, climate, budget appropriations, uh, policy with respect to children or seniors, we can't impact anything else if we do not have a seat at the table and the vote enables and empowers our seat at the table in American democracy. Thirdly, we wanted to dramatize that American democracy is under the most vociferous, hostile, hateful, and pernicious attack that we have seen in modern American history. January 6th is exhibit A in this battle against democracy, the notion that a group of people would use violence to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power in this country. Exhibit B uh, are the laws that are being passed and that have been introduced in state after state after state to simply make it more difficult for people to vote. Exhibit B. Exhibit C uh, is uh, 
the actions of the United States Supreme Court in both the Shelby and Brnovich cases, which, uh, which basically undercut a 50-plus-year-old statute called the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and the final exhibit in this narrative is the use of the filibuster to thwart, block, restrict, even debate on bills that have passed the Congress of the United States. And I'm confident would have supported the majority of the U.S. Senate from being debated or, if you will, voted on because of the filibuster. All of this taken together is why we did this scorecard. Yeah, let's, let me dig into each piece of that. Um, first of all, you talked about these voting restrictions that are being passed across the country. The Freedom to Vote Act, which gives Congress the power pursuant to the Constitution to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections. Uh, that onslaught can be thwarted by the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is based on the 15th Amendment of the Constitution, which prevents uh, the denial of the right to vote on the account of race and gives Congress the power to enforce that precept by law. Those two bills, those two bills would thwart much of what we see and then create a tool uh, to, if you will, thwart the racially and partisan gerrymandering of legislative and congressional seats we see taking place in the states. Yeah, but there's no sign that any of this will pass. We see that there's been uh, Republican resistance uh, to even debating them. It's a shame, Mary, that uh, there's Republican ex- resistance. It's, it's a shame, and it's going to be a scar on their record uh, in the long, long arc of American history, because historically, uh, Republicans, many, have joined with Democrats to pass voting rights, uh, if you will, time and time again since the 1960s. This is the first time that there is literally no Republican support, with the exception of Senator Murkowski of Alaska, who has uh, indicated support for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. This is a, this is a stain. Uh, I was part of the coalition that worked in 2005. D's, R's, George Bush administration assembled a broad coalition. We had more than 90 votes in the United States Senate uh, to, uh, to uh, extend the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, many of those same U.S. senators that voted in favor in favor of the Voting Rights Act in, 19, in 2005 have now raised the flag of opposition to even debating the bill. Yeah, you point out that um, it wasn't a partisan issue, but let's face it, as you said, there have been flip-flops. It's become a partisan issue because it was a different moment then. Do you think, uh, what do you think this scorecard will achieve? For example, if a senator gets an F on his or her record on voting rights, do you think that senator will care that they received an F? I don't know whether they'll, I, let, me say, let me say this. Our job is to let the world know and let the public know 
Look, the National Rifle Association has a scorecard. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has a scorecard. Many have scorecards. We have a unified civil rights scorecard. We will educate the voters. Let the record show that we will educate voters. We will, we will inform voters about the voting right, the voting uh, record of their member of the United States Senate. That's our job. Now, you talk about the filibuster, and I wonder, have you communicated with uh, President Biden or this administration? Because the president seemed really reluctant to engage on the issue of voting rights and ending the filibuster, at least while he is prioritizing his economic agenda. Have well, you communicated it's clear with that it is so clear that we're at the end of the uh, end of the end of the quest on the economic agenda, near the end of the quest on the economic agenda. Uh, I think the president knows where we stand. Uh, we have had more than one meeting with the president. He is clear on where we stand. The members of his administration know where we stand. The members of the United States Senate know where we stand. We've met with the president. We've met with Charles Schumer. We've met with Joe Manchin on two occasions. We've met with 13 Republican members. Uh, and our uh, staffs and constituency have met with dozens and dozens of United States senators. We've done our work. We've done our homework. We've done our spade work. Uh, we've said uh, to uh, Senator Manchin and others, of course, it would be better to have a bipartisan uh, if you will, Bill. But we've also said that bipartisanship is not in the American Constitution. Uh, and bipartisanship is a political method, not the only method. We have to have a bill and 50 plus one senators with a filibuster carve out is where this, this is where it's coming down to. And I think members of the Senate, you have to ask yourself in history, do you want to say, I defended the filibuster? Or do you want to say, I defended democracy? Yeah. Well, are you surprised that in 2021 that African-Americans, minorities, uh, others still need to raise their voices? As you said, you marched. Um, I have family members, older siblings that march for this issue. John Lewis, his name is on the act. And it's still the same issue. So... Why? Why is this still happening? I believe that the quest to protect democracy and the right to vote is going to be enduring, longstanding. And I see no, no reason to believe it's going to be easily settled in the near future. We just have to have the tools we need to ensure that American democracy is protected. Look. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 made this a more perfect union. It made this a better nation. It strengthened this nation. It was a difficult path to progress. The effort to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 began the moment the Plessy versus Ferguson decision was decided in 1896. So it was a long 60-year uh, battle. We should not have to have another 60-year battle. And, and American democracy, people must stand up for it. And we're calling on members of the United States Senate to stand up, demonstrate fortitude, demonstrate courage, and say, I'll stand up 
for the right of all people to vote. I will stand up to make sure that state law is not weaponized against the locked out and left out, uh, not weaponized against those who are uh, from communities of color, those who are indigenous or African-American or Latinx, those who are young students, those who are uh, uh, disabled. We will stand up. And that's what we want. We want the members of the Senate to stand up for American democracy. The House has done its job. They've done their job. I have to ask you, Marcus, uh, someone who has been doing this and in the fight for such a long time, and you've seen this ebb and flow, the fight continue. How worried are you? I mean, we now have people who are denying the outcome of votes, and some of these laws in the states are throwing back the approval of votes uh, to legislatures. Uh, How worried are you? Damn worried. Damn worried. This is not anything to play with. This, uh, This nation, what we saw on January 6th, was an effort at a totalitarian coup. What we saw on January 6th is not anything I could have ever imagined would occur in this country. It was outrageous. It was pernicious. It, uh, it, uh, it made people around the world ask, what has come of America? What has come of the citadel of American democracy? What has come of it? Uh, which is why the civil rights leadership of the country, we're putting it all out there. And we have always served as one of the consciences of this country. And with the conscience of this country, and I say one of the consciences of this country, one of the consciences of this country, and what conscience tells us is we have to stand up for some principles. And the right to participate, the right to choose your leaders, the right to vote is essential to who America is. I tell business leaders who some want to sit on the sidelines, I say, you have no quote unquote free enterprise system without American democracy. It's not the other way around. It's not the other way around. You, you have to stand up uh, for the right to vote. Well, we saw that some companies that said they wouldn't support folks who uh, voted against certifying the election, they're coming back. They're coming back. They're coming back with their donations, we we see. we have many. Um, Yeah, so we need those companies to hold firm. We also need the voice of business leaders in favor of democracy and how important it is to preserve and protect the right to vote. Yeah, I, I want to talk too, because um, you've discussed uh, not not that long ago when we were in the midst of the pandemic, that there were several pandemics facing Black America. You mentioned racial injustices in healthcare, jobs, social justice. I want to take your temperature on what the situation is today. How are we doing? Well, there is still tremendous momentum to respond to and address the nation's racial justice issues. There's also a backlash you see manifesting itself uh, in, uh, in many places. Uh, that uh, I expected it, uh, but it does not affect the resolve of uh, the so many who are working on institutional change. Uh, institutional change in the business suites of America, institutional change in higher ed, 
institutional change in elementary and secondary education. We cannot be deterred. There's going to be controversies. There's going to be conflicts. Uh, the question still that remains is the George Floyd momentum sustainable over a period of years? And I can't answer that right now. So, well, let's turn to a bill that actually was passed, which was infrastructure. Um, how big a deal was it for minority and African-American citizens? And what are some of the specifics that you think are in there that will help and benefit? So let, I want to paint a picture because I think what's kind of been lost in the conversation about the infrastructure bill is a picture. Let me paint this picture. We're now in 2021. We're one fifth of the way through the 21st century. We're 20 years in to the 20th century. So much of the fiscal focus of the nation in the last 20 years has been one, overseas wars, where we've spent $8 trillion. Number two, tax cuts heavily skewed to the wealthiest Americans. What this infrastructure plan represents to me is a shift in priorities because the infrastructure needs, we customarily had a new infrastructure bill every decade or so. And other than the Obama stimulus which had a small infrastructure investment in it, we really haven't had one since the late 1990s. Having said that, this investment is long overdue. And I think the president rightfully recast it as a 21st century measure by, number one, including broadband, by, number two, including investments in water systems, by number three, putting ample dollars in for public transit. The president recast uh, uh, this uh, away from what you traditionally would have, which is basically, let's just pave some roads and build some bridges. And that gets done with this bill. But also airports. Uh, I ran into the chair of the Amtrak board uh, just on Monday, and it was exciting in that the rail systems of America, uh, including the opportunity for new rail projects, will get their largest investment in 50 years. This is a forward-leaning infrastructure bill. Now, we have work to do to ensure that Black America uh, and other communities of color have a chance to get the jobs, to participate in the business opportunities, and also have an opportunity to participate in the element of it that is about renewable uh, and, and climate change so that we're not creating a climate divide like the digital divide. So all of this is work ahead of us. Well, there's, there's still some other provisions that are in the Build Back Better, which they're trying to pass now, but there's a lot of resistance to it, as we see. Why, why do you think there is? And what are some key, key provisions? I think the Democrats are going through this learning process about how to govern. Governing is a combination of vision and practicality. Vision and aspiration and pragmatics. And this notion uh, of, uh, of uh, factionalism within the Democratic Party around this is a bit new. And these 
The Democrats have to demonstrate in the House and the Senate that we can resolve our differences quickly and effectively. Remember, this is a budget bill. You know, Washington, there'll be one next year. So you do what you can. You include the provisions you can. You work through it. You fight through it. You pass it. And then you try, you work to implement it. And then you come back next year to try to fill in the gaps and build more consensus around things that for some reason didn't get in the bill. This is a moment for a combination of vision and practical politics, not posturing, right? And, and operating as though this is the only bill, the only, if something's not in here, there's no other chance uh, to pass it. The president was rightfully ambitious. When you're ambitious, when you're visionary, sometimes everybody's not going to be there. And when you're operating on a tight margin, particularly in the Senate, and you've got to get all those egos, all those personalities, all those uh, priorities together, not to mention a narrow margin in the United States House, where you have in the Democratic Caucus, you know, you have people who are from urban communities. You have people who are from rural and suburban communities. You know, you've got this broad, the Democratic Caucus represents a broad swath of America, right? It represents red, you know, red states, blue states, suburban, urban, and rural. And trying to, the challenge for the Democrats is with the power to govern on a narrow margin, you have to work amongst yourselves because clearly, with some exceptions, some on this infrastructure, you're not going to get Republican support. The, the Republicans passed their tax cuts. Uh, the Democrats have got to demonstrate the ability to pass this plan, which to me, shifts, it's already been cut significantly. And the president's original plan for both was six. Right. So. You know, you're going to have a plan when you take the two together, that's less than 50%. And you heard Senator Portman yesterday make an argument of why, of why, of why these investments are counterinflationary. Uh, but what I also say is, look, the families of America, the working men and women of America, uh, they've been locked out and left out for a long time. These, these, provisions, these initiatives, these proposals, expanding Medicaid, more money for housing, investments in childcare, uh, and you could talk about many of these things. This is what people voted for in the 2020 election, a change in priorities away from Trumpism and Tea Party neglect, where you don't invest in anything but tax cuts in the military and you leave everything else uh, if you will, uh, to chance. This is where we are. I've got to ask you, too, as a former mayor of New Orleans, uh, what do you think about another former New Orleans mayor, Mitch Landrieu, uh, being named as the coordinator for infrastructure for this bill? And what do you think that will my, mean? My for- good friend is a uh, perfect choice. Uh, he's got his hands full. Uh, it is a sleeves rolled up job. Uh, but I think he has what it takes. And uh, he's a no-nonsense seasoned operator, and 
uh, I think the president made a good choice picking someone from state and local government to do this job. Do you think black and minority communities will uh, see the he, benefits? We, we've already had two conversations. He called me and then I saw him yesterday at the White House and he said, I have to get with you immediately. I need to talk about equity. I need to know what you think. Uh, he's clearly going to be open uh, to our off to our suggestions and, and ideas. Uh, that I know, uh, know him well, uh, know him for a long time, and, and I'm confident he's a great choice. Yeah. Um, so you were at the White House for the ceremonies. It was cold out there. I didn't see you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, wasn't there. Why do you think that there is such a holdback on Build Back Better, particularly with all these provisions in them? This is a classic tug of war about what should be in this package. And because the margins are so narrow, any one member of the Senate can raise their hand and say, I object to this. Any handful of members of the House can say, I object to this. Or they could say, I've got to have this. It's a dose of political reality here that empowers everyone on the margin. Uh, in customary fashion, and I think that the, uh, the fact that these folks who are jockeying and negotiating have never had to work together like this before. You've got a bunch of uh, new members of the House. You've got uh, narrow margins in the Senate and some new members of the Senate. Look, my, I tell the, I'd say to the Democratic members, you have to learn how to govern. Governing is different than playing the opposition. And in governing, when the, you have to learn to work and compromise and, uh, uh, and remember that you're all in the same boat. And if the boat hits the waterfall, there'll be no survivors. Yeah. I, I also, actually, I just did also want to ask, with the midterms coming up, you could see so many of these voting regulations and restrictions and redistricting, gerrymandering, they're passing them with an eye toward really salivating toward uh, Kevin McCarthy wants to be the majority leader and they want to take over um, control of Republicans of the House and Senate. So what does it mean for democracy? GOP strategy, let's just suppress the vote. If we suppress the vote, we have low turnout midterms. History shows we have a better chance. Look, it's as clear as day. It's as plain as, plain as a crystal clear moonlight. I can see this from a mile or 100 miles or 1,000 miles away. There's no, uh, there's no secret in this battle and what it is about and the tactics that are being used. Thank you, Mark Morial, for coming on and talking about the scorecard what voting rights means for democracy and what both the Senate and the American people should do next, in your opinion. So thank you for joining Equal Time. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me. Uh, be strong, be blessed, and we'll do it again. So what's keeping me up at night? There's always been meanness in this world. And I've never been accused of being Pollyanna 
or of looking at the world through rose-colored anything. But are people who take the low road reveling in it more each day, demonizing some Americans to curry favor and reap benefits with others? I write about it in my Roll Call column this week. Check it out. Equal Time listener LaToya says she's thinking about purpose, worrying that she's not walking in her purpose in this life. But she says she's doing something about that and is confident in the future, her future. All the best on your journey, LaToya. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.